Great Bass Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith, episode 144. In a second, I'm going to call Andres Barbosa. He's home in Colombia visiting his parents. Many people have asked us to talk about different topics, so we're going to talk about sparring and topics related to sparring. But let's get the show on the road. I'll call up Andres. Calling Colombia. Hello, Steve. Andres, our fact checker. Thank you for being a guest How again. Are you? Good, thanks. And you? Thanks. How are things in uh, Colombia? Okay. Uh, pretty nice. I'm here uh, up in the mountains uh, visiting my parents. Does your mother and still? Does your mother? Mother? Does your mother still love you? Uh, hopefully, hopefully, at least through Mother's Day. Yeah, that's great. I saw here that we had a Colombian win the Kentucky Derby yesterday. All right. And the former tennis player from Key Biscayne, Ramiro Restrepo. But the horse is American. I found and the horse could probably be American, yes. But <laughs> Just, yeah. uh, I found out this morning, uh, Brian Rosenthal, who has this uh, Florida Tennis the 90s chat, I've known him for about nine years, as we joke. But uh, yeah, I saw it today. It was amazing because I used to—I think I used to play with his cousin, Alvaro, if I'm not mistaken. But I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure if it's a, if they're related now. But uh, I know the—I know him well. Pretty amazing story. Kentucky Derby. Um, I once read that jockeys are among the fittest athletes. It's a totally anaerobic challenge the way the the position they're in and how how they have to maintain that position um the kentucky derby yeah i read an article today in the herald talking about how his background started really young was basically i guess it was illegal in south florida for kids at a certain age to be near the track and his parents found a way to get them you know access yeah, but it was a pretty interesting story. But I mean, down here in South America, the uh, horse racing is pretty popular. And then if you go down to Argentina, it's like polo is very popular. So it, it was a pretty amazing story that I saw. I didn't realize it. I didn't watch it yesterday because I'm out of the country. But uh, I thought it was pretty cool. Oh, Kentucky Derby, that's big time. Sparring. The big time players. On the women's side, I have sparring partners. Uh, let's just go through the term, get going on this topic and topics related to it. It comes from boxing. You know, in tennis, we say shadow swing with it, shadow boxing. That's the, the first thing in boxing. And the second is to spar a hitting partner. I have as my notes, I know you sent me notes as well. Uh, a practice partner, I think of a practice partner, someone who's not paid in today's tennis industry, I think a sparring partner is typically paid two sides of the story. Um, we have an educational clip that basically states that feeding, feeding the ball and, and sparring does not equal teaching. I think a lot of times the, the parent is an uneducated consumer, not that all tennis parents fall in that category, but they just think, okay, this is going to be an accelerated process. It's going to be a shortcut for my child to, to improve, improve at a faster rate, that they hit with someone who's at a higher level. Um, I think back in the day of privates, there was uh, a lot more hitting. 
where today I hear in the U.S. especially kids are just programmed out. In other words, you take your private yeah, lesson, I mean, you take your private lesson, and then you find hitting partners. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I know my introduction to tennis coaching came in as as a hitting partner. I was probably freshman or sophomore in college. And I remember going from tennis practice at FIU and, you know, going off and hitting with guys like uh, Matias Boker, Nick Boker, Henry Del Campo, uh, Sean Madden. So I would think that that's got to be the, still the entry, the entry position. I guess the, the biggest issue is, I mean, I was pretty fortunate in the sense that I had some good mentors back then that I was able to kind of learn and observe from, but uh, I would say that today there's probably isn't that much of a mentor program just because it's pretty easy to just jump in right away, start hitting and making a good living right away. There's probably no incentive to really learn and improve. With Matias Bolker, uh, he grew up in South Florida, but he's from Argentina, is that right? Yeah, we used to train together actually when when I was still in high school at Kendalltown, and he is what like four years younger than I am. Yeah, so he's Argentinian, but he was living in Brazil for about two years. I guess his dad got transferred out there, and then they came back. I want to say when they were like sixteen, and they were very close friends with the Del Campos, and we used to play at, at his house all the time, and then. About a year or so later, he, he finaled at the Easter Bowl. And then, and then basically, I mean, he was always a top junior in Florida. I think he went to the University of Georgia and won the NCAAs twice, right? Twice, yeah. And and his brother, Nick, was also phenomenal. And just a bunch of great guys. I mean, uh, I've seen Nick randomly. I haven't seen I shouldn't say randomly. I saw him a few years ago in Miami. I, I want to say Matias is working for Apple. But uh, I think Nick is down in Miami. I think Matias's career was cut short with injuries, but I remember being at a 15K, one played one of our students in a final. It was outdoors in Orlando, like it, th- it was like 30, 38 degrees. Um, no, I think you're right, 100%, where many, many people start as a sparring partner. Uh, but again, the sparring partner, especially in the U.S. right now, they're, they're paid quite a bit of money generally, and then they, they have a speaking part. But I always tease in boxing that the sparring partner... They wear a helmet and a mouth guard, and they don't say anything, so it's the coach on the sidelines. I saw in your notes here, um, you know, I, I just read it. Ideally, in my opinion, parents would do the study and absorb all the information and then work with a sparring partner. That certainly could be very, yeah, con- very, very cost-effective, especially if the parents um, had the time to study the content. I think another thing too is the parents need to have a sit down with their child and go, Hey, this is how the world works. It's so expensive. And, you know, we take no complaints from a player, you know, who doesn't want to be coached by their parents. Again, it's not ideal, but the reality of it is tennis has become so expensive. Well, I mean, the one that came to my mind is uh, Maria Zachary. My apologies if I mispronounced her name. But uh, I know her mother was a top uh, was a top professional in the eighties, eighties, nineties, and I believe that you know Tom Hill, her coach now, but I'm pretty sure he came in as a, as a hitting partner 
right as soon as he finished playing in college. So, you know, it makes me wonder if, you know, if the mom was kind of like leading, leading the coaching aspect per se, and then having Tom do the hitting. But that does seem to me to be the, the model that would make the most sense. I mean, I'm sure Serena and Venus when they were using, or I guess Serena was using Sasha Bajan. I'm sure back then, you know, Richard was still, or Orison was still calling the shots behind, or maybe even at that stage it was beginning to be Patrick, but, uh, but it doesn't make sense, I guess, to have two separate roles, you know, having a hitting partner that is more than capable to match strokes with while still learning the craft of coaching. Uh, actually, Stevie Longley, um, going way, way back, he, I think it was for three years, uh, he hit with the Williams sisters every day. Uh, I know Brad Thyroff, very good tennis player from Rochester, New York. He, he was a hitting partner for, uh, I believe both the Williams girls, de- definitely, definitely one of them. Um, yeah, but you, you could take it a step further in South Florida where you had Camila Georgie's father who must have run through countless hitting partners with uh, promises of future riches on the pro tour. But again, it'd be the same thing. The father would be there. He'd be the coach, you know, and he would instruct the hitting partner what to do and Similar with the Osaka's. I mean, it was, uh, they both have infamous stories down in South Florida with anybody that was a hitting partner in those eras. With coming back to the Williamses, I know, uh, I mean, Jameer Jenkins at one time was the coach, or I should say, he was a sparring partner under uh, Patrick Mortagolo. I know Austin Krychek as a student assistant when he was at Voluntaries, you know, he would be asked to, uh, he even said it on our podcast. You know, he obviously didn't break too many rules, but if he was late for kitchen duty or something, he uh, would, ha- would have to be a hitting partner. And I remember he had to uh, hit with Serena more than one time. Um, Did you have a great story with uh, with Austin and Tommy Haas? Yeah, our listeners can go back the... to that podcast where you hit the hitting partner, and uh, if, I guess it pretty much went where... Uh, Tommy misses the ball. Austin misses the ball. But if Austin misses two in a row, he's just bumped. They just, they say sorry, and then they bring in another junior. You know, coming back to just kids going out and just hitting, you know, back to the days when we just had private tennis lessons in America. I think there's a lot to be said for having no feedback. You're just out there practicing. You just go out. You're taking your tennis lessons very much like how people learn to play the piano. You take your lesson you know, you take the, the show me session, show me how to do it, and then they just go out and they get the reps. Uh, there's a lot to be said for that expression, you know, figure it out on your own. I think too many times today in the U.S., a coach, I should say a player, they're always with a coach, a sparring partner. They're, they're just it, very seldom you just see juniors practicing on their own. Um, and, you know, a lot of times that's because of the way the kids are programmed. It's just like they don't call people up and play sets because they're just – they're in a program and same thing. We've said it many times on this podcast where there's not backboards. Yes. Yeah. I saw that in your notes about, uh, you know, just the ability to go out there and hit and figuring out on your own and being in your own little world for 
however long, an hour, two hours, without the constant feedback, it reminded me of uh, Wayne Ferreira now training uh, Francis Tiafo. And he just makes the guy go off and do Viking sessions for an hour, an hour and a half with no phone, you know, no TV, nothing, just his, him and his thoughts on his own. So my understanding is that I think there's that for something. My understanding of that is that he can't use his phone pretty much. You know, they work like the NFL nine to five and no phone during that time. Uh, I didn't know it was that extensive, but. Uh, how do you pronounce, how do you pronounce, uh, he's a, he's now working as a coach, but he was a sparring partner, Beijing, Sasha. Is that right? Yeah. Sasha, Beijing, as far as I know. Anyway, um, it was uh, for a week where Serena practiced at our place. I was in Tampa for 15 years and, and she was there because she's selling jewelry on, the uh, the shopping network that was based out of Tampa. And one, one thing that parents need to realize it's not just because a sparring partner can hit a hard ball is what he can do is he can, he used to be able to copy the playing styles of the women that she was playing against, you know, very seldom. I think going back to say a Steffi Graf, the, the players that played against her said they really had a tough time playing against her underspin backhand because you very seldom pl- see that. You s- see a woman who's hitting an underspin backhand even a man for that that much has become kind of a lost art, but to play somebody who's going to loop the ball, cut the ball, it's kind of like going back to how Mr. Hopman or Robert Lansdorp would feed tennis balls, but to be able to do that, not off a of feed, but be able to do that with a live ball coming back and forth. Um, I do think that if you look at the backstory of top players, it's like they've had a built in hitting partner. You know, last week, uh, Ricardo Acioli talking about, you know, you know, he was 12 years old and he had to start hitting drop shots to beat his mom. But, you know, parents or siblings, they, they just go out and just rally. Just, you know, the kids are so young. I think this is also a plus two. And a kid starts at a really young age. They don't necessarily have to be in tournaments at all, but they're hitting balls. And the, the expression that we use is they have no muscles, so they can't muscle the ball. Just very slight of built. Yeah, I haven't read. I, I I can't remember the name of the book, but uh, I've read a few books ever since I started doing the uh, the podcast with you. As far as tennis from the seventies, sixties, and seventies, and you know, it's very funny that in today's world, the hitting partners are typically, let's say, in the women's game, are former college players that are transitioning into coaching in the women's tour. But back in the day, it was very common for you to see, let's say, a Pancho Gonzalez mentoring a young Jimmy Connors or, you know, in, in what I would imagine would be a very similar setup to what is currently today, the hitting session. So kind of funny how that's kind of been kind of with they uh, ushered away a little bit on the pro tour. What do you mean? Having an older coach? No, just, well, maybe I would, maybe still on the men's tour. It's still out there where the older pros still kind of mentor the younger guys. I know, you know, you hear a bunch of pros currently that say, you know, how much Djokovic has had an influence or, or even a, uh, 
Casper Rude saying how much the dollars helped him at the academy just by hitting sessions. I mean, I guess you could also say like Carlos Moya has had a big influence with Rafael Nadal, but uh, it is a little bit, you see it a lot more where the, I'm not saying that it's a hitting partner per se, but, you know, Moya can still hit a great ball. Uh, I remember when Federer and Edberg, when Federer and Edberg were, were coach player. I mean, Edberg, there's video out there of Edberg hitting with Federer. I mean, he still hits a phenomenal ball. So, you know, there's a lot that can be, you know, there's, I'm sure there's a lot that can be taken in when a former great is telling you something and showing you on the court. I think showing you, I think there's, there's a definite wow factor there that applies to, to players almost no matter what age. No, no, for sure. Uh, Gerald, Gerald Donaldson, who is a volunteer coach at UPenn now, and, you know, he's climbing the ladder quite well on the ATP. And I believe it was a knee injury, but he, anyway, he had an injury, might've been shoulder. I'm not sure, but uh, he's somebody who had a hitting partner, but that's very rare. I understand what you're saying about, you know, like a, a Moya with an Adal, but it's very rare on the men's tour. Donaldson was somebody who had a, a hitting partner travel with them, but um, the women, it's almost 100%. You know, right. almost 100% they have a sparring partner. To digress, here's a Moya story. Um, Moya is going to play Pat Cash in an exhibition. And Moya comes out, and he gets to be number one in the world. So he, he comes out and hits a few balls in the warm up and. Um, goes up to the umpire again, it's just an XO. And he says, uh, I don't think I'll be able to play. I pulled a, I think I've pulled a groin and, and people think it was staged. So the, the audience is there and, you know, it's about 3000 people or so. And, and young Nadal comes out and he plays Pat Cash, who's, you know, 35 plus and Nadal is, uh, 15 and he, and Nadal wins. Um, yeah, yeah I, I heard that story. I do think that it's it that's something that takes place in other countries. It doesn't happen so much in the U.S. where players, young players, get a real sense of belonging because they're getting a chance to hang around with older players. Um, but you know, just the rally, you know, that's where you know you and I've talked about it. See, it's in your notes, in my it's in my notes. Um, Craig O'Shaughnessy who has certainly made an impact, which is great, helping people understand the stats, statistical analysis. But, you know, you just hear the first four shots. Um, I mean, Taylor Fritz has played so well. I mean, watching him bang balls from the baseline. You know, obviously he grew up with his mother, who was a top 10 player in the world, Kathy May. and um, But just being able to, um, you know, keep a hundred balls going, you know, rally to a hundred, you know, rally, see if you can rally 20 over the service line and start again, start again, 20 over the service line. But I do think that too many times people think about, well, what are the pros doing? And when you hear first four shots or another phrase, serve plus one. Uh, one thing that uh, positive for O'Shaughnessy is always promoting go to the net. And uh, I don't think people are really a, welcoming or absorbing understanding that that message but i think that one ball mentality 
Now, there's years ago, there's a tennis camp in France where you'd get a hitting partner. You basically, they, you shared one ball, so you got a half a ball each. And it's just like, you know, I do think that when a coach rolls out a basket, you know, tennis baskets, 300, groceries, grocery cart might have 600 balls in it. And the kids can be really sloppy. Um, there's a lot to be said about just let's just hit. Well, that hundred ball, that hundred ball example you were mentioning. I mean, the first that I heard of it was with a college teammate of mine that was hitting with Guillermo Vilas, and apparently Vilas would start every practice that there had to be a hundred balls hit beyond the service line. If one ball landed short, or God forbid, you missed. He started over and basically, you know, he must've been doing that from the seventies and eighties. And, and I remember when Agassi and Brad Gilbert started working together, that was a standard, uh, warmup routine. So that routine has been around for, and possibly it was before around before Velas, but that was the first one I'd ever heard of it. I know Velas used to practice hitting in the wind against two girls and just, I think what's that? I I had not heard that one before. Yeah. Just the shot. the shot tolerance is extremely low. I do think because of the hard courts here in the U S or the modern rackets combination, both, you know, slap city is Vanderbilt to say, you know, if you're, if your average is three and you get one, you improve to one, you've improved 33%. Is how many ball, how many, just how many balls can you keep in play? Um, I mean, Slap City could also be caused by if I don't hit a winner on this particular short ball, I'm not making the volley. So, you know, maybe if if there was more faith in making an overhand or a volley, it wouldn't be Slap City on that particular one. So it's kind of interesting to see what kind of the chicken, the chicken and the egg, what came first. Yeah, with... Slap City is, you know, young players, they don't get upset when they hit short. And, of course, when they hit short, yeah, I, I don't think it's today. The juniors are not playing a combination of a pro shot and a volley. They're just looking to hit a home run. I use Chris Clore's line. They're just looking to launch a missile. And it's just red zone to red zone, really unforced air after unforced air. Um, they just... You know, Braden used to always say that people think that they think their forehand is really great because they compare it to their backhand. And it's amazing how many kids run around their backhand from a really, really early age. You know, the shoulder playing the hit, you know, they'll have an extreme grip on the forehand. The ball bounces up high. It's conducive to a high bouncing ball. And, and not only do they not learn to play in the midcourt or the forecourt, but in the backcourt, they're putting themselves way out of position, but just the rally. Okay. Stand in the middle of the baseline. If the ball goes to the backhand side, hit a backhand, but coming back to just going cross courts. I mean, I know you played college tennis and I think years ago, too many college coaches were not creative. And it seemed to be that everyone was complaining that all our practices, we just go down the line, cross court, cross court, down the line. I saw that in your notes and uh, (laughs) brought back, flashbacks because that's 100 percent what we did down the lines cross courts and two on one it seemed like every single day so yeah and i, I love the yeah. line i love the line or the thought where well if a kid a kid loves the game they can go out and hit a half hour cross courts and half hour cross courts the other way uh, 
while you mentioned two on ones, uh, I think there was so, so much respect for Harry Hopman, Mr. Harry Hopman at one time, and so much respect for the Australians that people would do two on ones all the time. You know, in fairness to uh, our college program, you know, it was tough. We had, let's say, 12 guys and maybe, I guess we had our coach, Peter, and then Peter Lehman, and then we'd have an assistant. So, you know, and the assistant usually was a an ex-player getting his graduate degree. But, you know, you see a lot of the college staff now, they seem to have at least three, four, uh, the staff seems to be at least three to four deep. I mean, I think I saw Tennessee had quite the staff. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, if, you, if you've got four people on the staff and you've got 12 guys, it's a lot easier to get a little bit more one-on-one instruction and not not solely be doing down the line cross courts. Yeah, I do think that, well, you mentioned college tennis, cross courts, cross courts, play some tiebreakers at the end. Um, having practice be more creative. I do think that advanced players, they grow away from doing baskets. Hey, you feed me 10 overheads, I'll feed you 10 overheads. Hit 100, 100 overheads a day, minimum. Coming, coming back to the cross courts, one thing I like to do is take, a, take the phone and put it on the tray by the net post and just say, okay, for 20 minutes, we're just going to cross court forehands. And, and you don't hear kids say, sorry, they're rallying, sorry. Uh, because when, you're, when you miss, you're wasting another person's time. And then also, too, you hustle to pick the next ball up. Uh, you know, one thing that's gone away is junior players hitting with senior players, the youth versus veteran, even a practice session. But when you, when you get a chance to hit with a better player, um, one, we tell the better player, if the, the player with inferior skills, if they miss, it's the better player's fault. But, you know, people have to build up their mind the mindset, their endurance to be able to hit 20 minutes. It's, it, when you do that, I mean, try some of our listeners go out and try that. Um, you know, kids just think it's, it's forever. You know, you know, you also, you know, I think another thing too, is you have to have them take their wristwatch off because they'll, they'll start looking at their watch. Like, you know, when, when is this going to be over? Um, yeah, I do think people that play, play indoors, it's quite difficult to say, okay, let's go get a court and hit cross courts. Um, you, know, you certainly can do it with four people on a court. You do it with six, and if you miss, you're out. Or you can, off to, off to the side of the court, if your ratio is six to one, you can have skip ropes. I mean, you're 70 to 200 square feet. So I do think that it was overused, the cross-court the cross court drill. But I think now it's, like you said, ushered away. It's, uh, it's something that's not uh, as prevalent as it once was. Yeah, and it's... Uh there is an element of concentration to it. I mean, I remember when I was a, when I was first starting out, I'd watch Rodney Harmon at UM and he'd have like a four by four box in the corner and having people have to hit 25 total. And maybe he subtracted when, when they miss or, or what have you, or maybe you had to start over once you missed. I forgot what it was. And maybe you got, let's say five and you hit a cone but it was it was difficult, and it was something where you know the coach can feed the ball, but until you make twenty five, you're on your own. You're on your own trying to uh, problem solve to get to the desired result. Rodney Harmon, to digress, uh, I 
there's 17 sections of the USTA, correct? 17 sections? Oh, you got me. Yeah, I'll have to look that up, fact checker. My, and, my, my fact checking only goes so far. And so we had four students. The USTA had, each section had a person hired to just travel and do school assemblies. So we had four students that held those positions. And anyway, it was in Dallas and um, Rodney was hired to lead that program. And I, re I remember attending it. So we had four students that were, you know, it was, you know, it was a big deal. It was a, to work for the USTA and, and try to promote tennis within your section. Uh, quarterfinals of the US Open. Um, he transferred, I'm not trying to think, I think he transferred to SMU and Dennis Ralston was the coach. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't know where I don't know, I don't know if he went SMU first and then Tennessee or the other way. Yeah, that's, but it was I, I SMU think, and Tennessee. Yeah, I think it was SMU was the second move. But uh, wooden rackets, I think that's where to get your parents to go to the garage sales, and we we talk about that quite often for stroke reduction, but with hitting. I mean, I think of Federer. If if all the players tomorrow had to play with wooden racket, Federer would do great, and I think Alcaraz would do great, you know, people that have really solid fundamentals. Um, you, you go out and you hit with a wooden racket. Um, it, it will just let, let you know that, uh, you know, that you, whether you have a long or a short hitting zone. Some other things on my mind. A great clip go ahead, go ahead. Go. I saw a great clip the other day on, uh, I guess Federer and Rublev were out there hitting in, uh, in Montreal. I'm sorry, and in Monte Carlo with wooden rackets. Hmm. Interesting to watch. Uh, one guy that I would assume would have been great with a wooden racket is Dimitrov. And one guy in Rublev who I thought would have possibly struggled. And both looked like they were pretty effortless hitting with the wooden frames. You, you said Federer, but you meant, you, meant, you, you meant Dimitrov, right? I saw that. Were they, they, did I say, did I say better? Yeah, they did an exhibition. Poor guy, yeah. yeah, poor guy. Dimitri, Dimitrov was, he's called he the, the Little Fed. He can't escape that nickname. Yes, I meant Dimitrov and Rublev. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. With rhythm hitting, you know, gears with uh, Manchov. Tempo, tempo is something the coaches used to say in Germany. Tempo, tempo, Manchov with... Um, just go out and uh, Jim Lair used to do it where you do it to a count of 10. You know, 10 was the highest with intensity level. Gears, first gear, second gear, third gear. You know, people need to learn to be able to hit an off-pace shot. You know, you can do it where they're rallying. It's just arc a ball, drive a ball. Um, you can put the uh, sparring partner or you could reverse it. But and I think this is what happens many times with the older coach. I think of uh, Federer and, say, Tony Roach, the older coach stays in one corner, and obviously they're a world-class tennis player, uh, they're not going to miss. You know, can alternate spins, but just... Um, and then also, too, to be in a hitting session where it's not a matter where you're uh, trying to win the point. You're just trying to be consistent. You know, those two, two, those two words come up all the time. Are you disciplined and are you, are you, are you consistent? Um, Speaking of Tony Roach, I'm going to make a plea now. If anyone in your network here or the listening audience has a connection to getting Steve to interview Tony Roach, uh, sign me up. Uh, count me in on that one. That's one interview I'd love to hear. 
with, uh, I know Andy Brandy, um, Andy and I worked together with All American Sports. Andy's two years older than I am. And actually one summer I met Andy and Joe and I requested to work with the two of them the following summer. And the following summer, Joe was not there, but I, I worked under Andy. And I remember Andy, uh, he, he helped Tony Roach at one point and Roach sent him a telegram back in the day. It said, uh, it was thanks coach from Roach. Um, but yeah, amazing background. The, the, uh, anybody connected with Australian tennis at that time, late fifties and on amazing, you know, just to think about the number of people he worked with, I, I think a lot of those things become forgotten. It's like Fetter had a, a very strong Australian influence with Peter Carter than with uh, Tony Roach. And, that, and anybody who's connected to Australian tennis from that era, there's going to be a great appreciation for all-court tennis, for doubles, for Davis Cup. Um, I mean, he's totally forgotten because when, uh, when Lendl and Becker came back as coaches, and everybody was like, oh, the super coach, this is a new trend, and this is something that's uh, never been seen before. And, you know, Tony Roach, you know, started with, with Lendl, then went to Rafter, then went to Federer, and then went, or maybe went to Hewitt, and then went to Federer. I mean, this guy has seen the best of tennis for, you know, what, 40 years as a coach. Forget as a player that he saw, you know, twenty years of that prior to that as a player. So, oh no, it's like if, what if, a wealth if, of information. If, yeah, if people talk to Labor, you know, he, talk, he talks about uh, getting the opportunity to watch Don Budge win the Grand Slam. You know, to, to, there's no doubt about it. To, um, when you're around a world class player, um, here's something at a much much lower level. So my son Connor ends up being ranked uh, two in juniors in the U.S. Now that doesn't mean that he's necessarily number two because some kids are off playing ITFs or even playing uh, for ATP points. So a young kid who went on was part of a Division Three national championship team, which means he's a really good tennis player. But he grew up playing uh, multiple sports, and throughout high school he played basketball and tennis. So then he, you know, found out okay, I'm, I'm five nine, five ten, and he pursued playing college tennis and you know so he was taught by one of our students so he, he was pretty efficient hit the ball well so he comes in and my son connor just said to him you know one teenage boy to another teenage boy they're the same age he goes hey dude you're, you're just trying to hit the ball too hard and you know I, it's just if you, you know just okay i'm gonna keep the ball and play i'm gonna let the other person miss and hit short but but all the way up is that um it should be in a junior program where the 18s pull the 16s, the 16s pull the 14s, and all the way down to the caboose, you know, the early childhood childhood development classes, the tennis for tots. No, it's very powerful to be around top players, um, for sure. With the Bryan yeah. brothers, I've got that in my notes. Mark Bay pointed this out to me. I'd watched the Bryan brothers practice many times, but Bay met them when they were teenagers, and Mark Bay is a coach out of Chicago. And, uh, for years, he would be in the booth uh, at the US Open, the, the Bryan brothers' booth, and they run on the court, and they try to hit 500 balls 
and they basically are just doing three formats, you know, service line to service line hitting ground strokes. One comes to the net, hits volleys. The other one back comes to the net. So it's one up, one back, and then both are up. And they, they just try to hit 500 balls in the first five minutes. Um, you know, I think that's one thing is just hitting. I always tell kids, uh, it's like money, you know, the, the rich get richer because they, yes, this worked a little bit better years ago or the, the bank gave you a little more interest, a little higher interest rate, but you'd put your money in the bank and the bank would pay you. But then people have to, on the flip side, they got to borrow money. The people can keep the ball in play, can keep the ball in play. And that experience level just builds. Um, you know, I think that, you know, that's where when you're out there with a stopwatch is how much time do kids take to pick up balls is that you, you run when you make a mistake in the rally with your hitting partner or sparring partner, you say, sorry, you run to get the ball. We have people jog backwards because it's better for their legs, for their speed. And then you put the ball back in play. Um, some things we have, I have down here in my notes for rallying is like exchanging emails, send and receive, you know, when, especially a few years back, um, with Jose Garris influencing American tennis with his position, director of coaching of the USTA is send and receive, send and receive, you know, people playing catch with a baseball. You used to, you, I was never really a baseball player, although I played baseball, you know, everybody played a little bit when I was a kid, the boys wasn't fair for the girls, but you, you could throw and catch. You go to, go to a picnic and your uncle would say, hey, you want to play catch. And if you look at a, pro football game, the quarterback on the sideline, you know, they're playing catch. Now I think very often they have a receiver next to the quarterback. So they're practicing catching the ball and, and they're just slowly going through the motion and they're just warming up their arm, but they're going through the same mechanics. And I think that's very important where when kids rally service line to service line and, and, and with a sparring partner, they're, they're going to, there's a visual side to it because they get to see their, their sparring partner hit the ball and how effortless they can be and how easy they make it look. And, um, I think also too, is just rallying a ball. I mean, there, it, it should, I mean, besides the reality of it, you've got to be able to keep the ball in play, but people should look at it. Hey, this is fun. You know, this is, this is, it's, it's social. Hey, let's go hit balls up the middle of the court. You mentioned, uh, Mark Bay. I, I remember him. We used to host the, Tennis Plaza Nationals, and in January, it had a bunch of like little satellite sites. And Mark Bay would get there six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning. And I'll never forget, he said he was there early because he had to do a kick serve recalibration to one of his players. And, and I used to always love that line. Every time I saw him, I'd mention kick serve recalibration. Yeah, you know, he's done some TV. I know he's done the TV for Calumet. That is right. He's great on TV. For a couple of years. I, yeah, he definitely, jockocracy, he definitely uh, can talk tennis. With Jim Lair, um, I saw an old clip of Jim Lair from our library yesterday where he himself is going through the 16-second cure, you know, what you do in between points. But he, he would say that for players that are really going to be good, you know, hitting the tennis ball, just the sound, the feel, the ball coming off your racket, that's your drug. That's your fix. And it's a must. You just want to hit balls. And, you know, I think that's where, you know, does the kid want to hit after practice? Hey, you want to rally some more? Let's go hit some more balls. 
you know, the old adage, do they show up early and stay late? Um, why do you comment on, what are your thoughts on the UTR paid hit? You're familiar with that? When that came out? I've never seen it. I, I know I've heard you say uh, numerous times that uh, the first time you heard it, you thought it was a mob hit. Yeah, the mafia. But, uh, I've never, I've never, I've never used it. I've never known anybody to use it, so I'm not familiar with how that works. Well, there's there's two narratives. I mean, there's always two stories. One positive, and I didn't I didn't see a positive when I I didn't this 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 can't be be true. Uh, first of all, what is the UTR paid hit? It's a service where, say, for example, you know, you have a teenage boy who's a seven and he wants to hit with a nine. Well, you get the phone number of the of the nine, and then you call them up. You, um, I understand they had to be a, at a certain age; they had to be over the age of sixteen, and then you could pay them to hit balls. And the positive that I heard was well, that would be a great way for the young player who's trying to play the tour to be able to make some money. Um, the uh, but. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate um, in some ways. There's there's so many thoughts to this, but we've we've already said that we a parent could study the information and then be in charge of the drills, in charge of the hitting session, and tell tell their sparring partner what to do. Because you know, typically someone who hits the ball well, they played some college tennis, they really are not worthy of a speaking part. Not when they're not when they're going to start talking about technique. They're going to wing it. They're going to make it up as they go. Um, but they feel compelled to do that because they're being paid quite a bit of money. Um, and then also too, the, even the parent wants them to say something. And certainly, I think they can when it comes down to okay, bigger target, um, got to get there, get set, faster feet, small steps. But are they really going to recognize? You know, problems with the grip, problem with the, with the swing. The but I I do know that uh, it's kind of the oldest trick in the book. Uh, you know, Balateri, a lot of positives say about the late Nick Balateri, but the backroom deal where they they come in and um, are ushered into a back room, the top the top juniors with their parents, and they're you know this is the deal. You know, you come here and we, we will give you this. And you know, getting free room and board, and um, and that's the magnet. They they attract other players. Um, but I think tennis is already too expensive. So um, I do think with a sparring partner, I, it shouldn't be random where the parents are going to pay somebody just because the person hits the ball really well. Um, there should be more substance than sizzle. Yeah, I think uh, if I look back on like the last fifteen years that I saw. Especially in the women on the on the, or on the junior girls circuit, you know it's very very prevalent where you have a parent that is handling the duties of coach at a tournament, where you know maybe they sit in on every lesson, they hear the information that's being spit out, and they hire a, a hitting partner, and then they basically are the middle person there to try to relay the information sent from the coach towards the hitting partner, making sure, like, as you say, you take that one hour private, you do 10 hours of work, and then you come back later, and you've improved since that last private. 
and you can move on to something else. So I could definitely see the use for that, but I think it's really, really important for the parents to make sure that they are actually understanding what the coach is saying. I think too often, if you're good at coaching, you can make that transfer of information seem to be quite easy. And people think it's easy, and it's not as easy as people think. So, I mean, I think sometimes intelligent parents that weren't necessarily tennis players don't do enough of the research to really master that that craft where they can understand how to relay it to their kids. Right. You you just said it, transferring information. The way the great base is laid out, it's systematic. It's a structure. It's a blueprint. It's directions. And it's a system of systems. It's, it's, you know, a lot of people that haven't done their homework and, you know, they don't realize that, okay, the science comes from, say, Vic Braden or just the progressions from Dennis Vandermeer and on and on and on. So in all fairness, many times uh, the parents are not going to become that knowledgeable by just observing lessons. But if there's a reading list and there's videos and say, this is, these are the routines. I know um, when my, my two boys are very young, I, I grew up playing ice hockey. And when I was, uh, my, my three, three older brothers, for example, I've mentioned that I'm sure that they didn't go to a figure skating coach. That was just coming into ice hockey when I was a kid and being the youngest. So I was privileged to be taught by figure skaters. It was at a, a school in Toronto. And now in the NHL, every player, all these years later, every player can fly. It's just it's amazing the speed, amazing how players can skate. Then I look at pro tennis. Granted, it's improved tremendously in many, many ways. Uh, but it's just it's amazing to see world-class players that have such holes in their game. You know, might say just, we just start with, say, the backhand volley. Uh, but no, it, if, if the parents were to really understand the routine, even the child or peer teaching, um, with, I do think the economics of this, the sparring partner um, academies, for example, could have student assistance. I, w- I wouldn't call it a scholarship, but have it be a student assistantship, and have the have the older players help the younger players. But it, it, it is a, a major, major bonus if the older player can tell the younger player, especially among boys, if a. You know, a 15-year-old boy is telling a, a 12-year-old boy, hey, you know, this is, this is what you should do on your forehand. I think every, everyone's heard that, that they listen, to the, they listen to the teenager, a kid just a couple years older than they do listening to their teacher, their coach, or their parents. Well, I'm going to go backwards here and talk about going back to the, the great base curriculum. I think, it's re- I think this episode in particular... It's super important for young parents or parents of young kids to get started because if they were to go through the progressions and, and improve, I think at the right time, a hitting partner would be very useful or a sparring partner would be very useful. I think it works a little bit harder. It's a little bit more difficult when you are a teenage player, let's say you're 15, 16, and let's say you have holes in your game, it is very hard for that player to go backwards and make adjustments. Even if it's picking one stroke at a time and making a change, it's 
they're very they're less conducive to making the effort to making a change. So why I think this episode should really be geared towards you know the parents of kids that are let's say from seven to eleven. If it's done right, I think they can really really develop the careers of their kids in a much more cost efficient ba- ba- uh, manner. No, no, I'm glad you said that. With uh, coming back to the skating train of thought, so I was in Toronto. My kids, you know, I I just took them to skate to become athletic, and then they fell in love with hockey. And I said, well, you know, I can make arrangements to uh, teach here, there, or anywhere. So I was in Toronto and um, studied skating. And Yari Bariski is famous now, and he's put so many players in the uh, NHL. Uh, but yeah, little kid tennis and little kid hockey, I think all the sports are the same, that if you can't skate, you can't play. And you see these young kids, to me, it's, it's like the squeaky balloon or the fingernails on the blackboard. I see someone hitting the ball poorly. You know, it's, do I have a crystal ball? No, but to see down the road, it's like, oh, no. And that's where, again and again, the winning's confusing. Um, I think we're talking about sparring partner, hitting with all levels. I do think it's a problem that people are always looking to hit with a better player. You know, the, the young players become tennis snobs. You know, especially in our program where we have the older players help the younger players, you have to then remind the younger players who grow and the years go by, and now they're the older player, they have to remember, hey, just think about all the people that helped you. Just think about all the older players that helped, helped you along the way. Um, I think that's very important to be able to hit with all levels of players. And it's... Um, you know, I think when people are selecting a sparring partner, are they selecting someone who's, hey, this player is very, very consistent. Um, Miran Mann, uh, who's been a guest on our podcast a couple of times, great guy. Big lefty, big serve, forward on everything. And I can just remember telling him, uh, and he actually, his background, he, he was Shapovalov's hitting partner when he was a young kid. Took him to tournaments, but his, his mother would say, just hit high to his one-handed backhand, and high to his one-handed backhand when he was a little kid, knowing that that was a weakness. But I remember telling Miran, you know, you've got to be the worst sparring partner. And he used to just thrive on, you know, I'll show you, you know, and get back on the baseline and just not miss. And because that was not really part of his game style. What's interesting, you're talking about the uh, playing with a lesser player. You, you sent me the uh, podcast from... Uh from Fabio on functional tennis on Mark uh, Gillard. Yeah. Coaches um, uh, Magdalenette. And, you know, he made a point in there that, you know, while he does use college players, top junior guys to, to play with, to play and practice with Magda on a regular basis before big events, he's going to have, have her practice with other women or younger girls that aren't as good, you know, to get used to a, you know, not so, not so hard shot or not so heavy of a shot. And it was funny. He mentioned, uh, you know, he didn't, he doesn't think of it in terms of a hard ball, a slow ball. He just thinks of it as the ball. You know, it made me think of you and your, uh, use of the word, the game. So, yeah, I mean, I think that was a really interesting point that he made as far as, you know, having a nice uh, 
wide spectrum of, uh, of hitting styles. You know, Hingis, um, she spent time at Saddlebrook, spent time at um, Nick Balateri's, and of course, the mother of the coach, Melanie. I mean, people have to remember that she uh, she won junior Wimbledon at 12. Uh, she used to set her hand, didn't have a great serve. No. Uh, was it Wimbledon or the French? I think it was the French. Was it the French? Okay, fact check. I think it's well. She never. She. Uh, I, I'm talking about. I'm talking about junior Wimbledon. I think. I think she. Yeah, I'm uh, talking about junior French. Yeah, I'm talking yeah. about twelve. But actually, here, like you know, her, she. The first thing on Melanie is uh, made her hit, made the daughter hit with everybody at the academy, so she could see see everybody's swing, not just to see feel the ball and how everybody everybody's ball is a little bit different, but to just read read the racket. I think that's a good message for parents is that, you know, she was such a good player, but you know, she was, we wanted her to hit with everybody while she's here. A side note is uh, John Lofty Diaga, very, for a very brief time, he trained with us when he was a kid. He played mixed with her for, for uh, three years. And, you know, he, I told him a few times, I said, why don't you talk to her about her serve? And, uh, you know, you get to a certain certain point in time where, you know, you don't tell anybody about this serve. My son played and became all American with a player who had a palm up serve. And my son would just say to him, Cobra, 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 you know, put the racket in such and such position. Great, great player, but not a great serve. Um, I, speaking about the serve, I want to get this in. We talk about sparring partners. I think this gets people's attention. So I've been in the orange bowl many, many times, many, many decades now. Uh, going back to when McEnroe played. This doesn't apply to the girls, but the boys. You just walk the courts, and you just know a large percentage of the players, um, especially the, the foreign players, they're not thinking about college tennis. And then as you walk the courts, you just evaluate their service motions. And there's a very good chance that five years later, so all those 18-year-olds are now 23, and they become sparring partners because they're not good enough for pro tennis. And then in that sense, tennis is a fallback. You know, people, you know, a lot of the teenage boys get to that level. So they're, they're obviously a good hitter, that expression. They're a good hitter and they have a built-in job. It's a survival job. They didn't plan on being a tennis teacher, didn't plan on being a coach, but that's, that's the scenario. Um, with um, what else comes to your mind with sparring partners? Yeah, I mean, it's not much. I mean, I think we've covered a lot of of the different angles. I would say that uh, the one aspect that I have not seen enough when I see, and and it could be a situation of, you know, a lot of facilities won't allow a sparring partner to have a basket with them. But even with, uh, you know, if you have six balls, the one aspect that I don't see enough of are return to service. I mean, I would always think that's a great um, a great method for a, a hitting partner to really influence himself, to make a really big impact on a, on a young player is by working on the return to service. I mean, they can literally, you know, just get six balls, ask the returner to keep hitting the ball right back to them, and then just get lots of reps hitting 
return of service. That's really like say, you know, unless a coach is well thought out or or well structured, I just don't think enough kids hit enough return of service. And that's definitely something for a for a young sparring partner. It's an easy way to kind of get in there and make a big jump right away because, you know, most kids don't practice enough serves and they don't practice enough returns. Yeah, or the the way the way to work on the serve last. Uh, Monica Selish's father used to serve about 500 balls. There's about 250 balls in a, your typical uh, tennis cart. And Braden used to say that no one took the ball earlier, male or female. I, I would say this about sparring partners. The tennis directors have to be very careful if they offer that as a fee because then people want to pay a reduced fee and then still treat it like a tennis lesson. Uh, with it's always case by case. Uh, I, I do think that um, the, the idea of giving no scholarships, I mentioned that earlier, student assistantship, you know, there, there should be an orientation for young coaches. Um, Bill Tim with the USPTA, voice of the USPTA, he used to do uh, a three to one, I think it was, where you know, he would lecture the USPTA coaches. And I remember being at so many sessions that, where he was the, the headliner. And you take one lesson with him, and then you take three lessons with a staff member. Um, with So it could, be pa- it could be packaged, but a tennis director needs to be very careful not to say, well, you know, these are what lessons cost, and these are what hitting lessons cost, and hitting lessons may be half what a, a lessons cost. Because then... Joe Public could say, okay, we'll take the reduced lessons and we'll just ask questions and then it becomes um, just that. Um, where they're signing up for a, a lesson that's half the fee and, and, and expecting it to be a lesson. Um, sparring sessions, no talking. You know, water breaks are not social breaks. Um, I think it's still, you know, good cop versus bad cop is like, let's go to work here. And... Um, I think also, too, is that when you have people go cross-court, I think it's important to say this. You know, we, we, I rattle this off all the time. You know, boredom. You know, to be bored is to insult your own intelligence. Uh, to be bored is a poor reflection upon yourself. If you're, if you're bored, that means you're boring. You've you got to be excited about, okay, let's, let's see how many balls we can hit over the service line, cross-court, cross-court. And, you know, you can do the reverse cross-courts as well. So, um on either side, say, for example, if somebody's too close to their body on their backhand, is put yourself in the forehand corner and hit backhands um, the opposite way. I think also the sparring sessions become a big lesson realizing that placement is better than power. Play the ball deep. Play the ball like a machine. Um, with, uh, I've got down. I'm going to take a dip. Go ahead, go, go. I've got, I've got a new angle here for the uh, sparring partner. So we're about an hour away from um, Carlos Alcaraz playing against uh, Struis in the finals. Yeah. And the, the amount of coaching that I hear coming from Juan Carlos Ferrero, it, you know, and he was a former number one in the world, phenomenal player, but I don't know who's coaching Struis. But the more, the more that they allow this coaching rules to be in effect and the more they record it on the sidelines, you've got to imagine that the majority of the lower ranked guys 
are probably having hitting partners or, you know, the level of, uh, of information is probably not going to be the same between the kind of interesting to me now that uh, they're really making a push to record these coaching dialogues, you know, how much are they going to show? Are they going to show enough to show that these guys don't know, you know, they're not, they're not that creative and they're saying the same mundane things over and over or are they going to filter it like the NBA where, you know, when the NBA zooms in on a, on a timeout, you're just hearing generic stuff, you know, you know, play defense, you can do it, rah, rah, rah. There is an X and O's that are being showed because I'm assuming that teams have said, do not share that information, but it's going to be kind of, kind of interesting now that, you know, TV is really making a push to, to get the, the coaching box. You know, Ferreira doesn't stop talking. I mean, for those of, for those that speak Spanish, they, they know what he's saying constantly, but, uh, kind of interesting to see like, uh, who Stroop has in his corner and what they might be, what they might be saying. Well, I know you speak Spanish. Uh, do you, are you in tune with, uh, can you pick up with Carl, Juan Carlos is saying to, uh, Alcaraz? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, yeah, you can definitely, you can definitely hear Carlos, uh, Juan Carlos saying, you know, um, you know, say two, two to one side, one to the other, or he's going to say, you know, oftentimes it's just very, um, generics to get them moving, you know, no big deal, move on, you know, be sitting on this serve, you know, or, you know, play two here and then go short. But I mean, he is constantly, constantly coaching. I mean, if it's, uh, you know, and I'm, maybe I'm one of the, uh, the outliers, but I'm not a fan of it. I don't like that they've, I, I, you know, coaching has been around forever. Me personally, I prefer where you had to be a little bit coy and sneaky to get your coaching tips in versus, uh, just all this talking. So, I mean, I get it from a TV perspective that, you know, maybe it's interesting for the person at home, but it kind of seems, too much to me anyway. And it could just be that TV is focusing on it too much instead of the coaches doing too much. Maybe this has always been around. You know, I know here that I'm in Colombia, you know, Pato Alvarez, who was, you know, Colombian. I mean, he used to, he was infamous for literally coaching the entire match and, and the chair umpire knowing it. And Pato Alvarez moving around the, uh, the lower bowl and just changing his hat. And players, his players knew what color hat he had, and he would just walk around and and literally micromanage an entire match, saying serve and volley here, you know, serve to the forehand here and stay back, or or what have you. So, you know, I'm a little bit like Agassi here that that doesn't like the coaching as much and wants the player to be able to figure it out on his own. But uh, I could be in the minority. No, I I I like your side of that. Where uh, I like to. You know, no coaching, even though they were coaching. But now, yeah, it's a little bit too much. Uh, actually, uh, you could uh, send Andy Fitzell an email, text, give him a call. He he could tell you what's going on with Struff uh, because Henry Squire, who I met when he was six, gone on to become a pretty good player. And he's practiced, I guess, I shouldn't say endless hours, but he's practiced too many times to count with Struff. And, uh, in fact, he's, he did some work from what Andy told me with co- with uh, Struff's coach recently, but Andy, uh, you know, they, they would share 
court time. In other words, uh, they would practice. Andy's coaching Henry and Struff's there with his coach. Um, years ago at the Orange Bowl, Wojtek Mirez, who became a really good tennis player, same age as Jimmy Connors, and he wasn't really he wasn't given the chance to travel like feedback. But I can remember, you know, saying, hey, "Okay, let's let's go around this place and just you're going to translate for me because he could speak six languages." And it's it's pretty interesting that the myths of tennis are the same in every language. Uh, you know, if, you know, it's just it's just amazing. It's it's the same same thing. Uh, here are a few things on ideas. Uh, when I just think of uh, sparring, you know, I mentioned Martina Hingis. Mother wanted to hit with every ball. Margaret Court, uh, if she would come back um, after being pregnant and. Um, you know, she was continued to play the tour as a mom, and she would say, "You got to be careful not to walk the plank." Where players, if they they just rally too much, they just move side to side. They don't move diagonally into the court. Dennis Vandermeer used to say, as a, as a tennis coach, you want to be good enough with your racket where you can hit various shots. You know, you can intentionally hit short. And then arc the ball deep where the person you want them to move diagonally. It's kind of like the Spanish extra where the, the player would do it off a live ball. And for our listeners, a live ball means it's off the racket. A dead ball means the, the coach is just feeding the ball out of the basket. So a live ball goes back and forth. But not be careful not to go side to side. Uh, Lynette Federer, um, Rogers asked one time, what was your mother's number one tennis rule? And she said, he said that never let a ball bounce twice. Um, I share a story where Jim Klein sent me a video of uh, Fetter said, you're going to love this and share it with your juniors. And I looked at it and I didn't get it. And I said, what, what am I going to love? Because, you know, he's just nonchalant, not moving his feet. But anytime the ball was hit stray away from him, he just would sprint. He ran after every ball. So that was built in at a young age. Uh, I always tell players, and I think of Jimmy Connors, Medvedev is a player like that. Get behind the ball. You watch Medvedev, when the ball goes out, he is, you know, it's like um, David Ferrer, they called him the dog, Pero, that um, just run and run and Come run. Come on, Steve, you can, you can do a better job with those double R's. Yeah, give, give us that again. Perro. Perro. So anyway... Um, Mavidev gets behind the ball. Jimmy Connors get behind the ball. Even the ball's going out. I mean, it's a pet peeve of mine. When the ball's going way out, a kid just stands there and they put their finger up. They don't say anything verbally. No presence on the court. Run after every ball, just like a dog. Um, I think this is an amazing story for with sparring partners, is the Malevas. And the Malevas, not freaks of nature, Average size, all three sisters at one time, back when they only had 16 seeds, it was three times at three majors, the three sisters, all seeded. And their mother in Bulgaria, she had control of indoor courts and she had control of sparring partners. Um, So court time and just hitting balls. Um, I tell a story about being in Japan and, you know, went to – five cities and lectured eight hours in each city. One city it was 16 hours. And then I'm in, riding in the car with uh, Kazuko Swamatsu's father. And then we go to the Japanese tennis center and the pro event going on. And 
he could speak a little English. I could not speak a little Japanese. So he just looks at me, he goes, famous face, famous face. Everybody knew him. So I said, well, and he said this in English. He didn't have to use a translator. I said, how do you become really good in tennis? Because his granddaughter was very good as well. I top 50 in the world. And, um, basics, 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 repeat, repeat, repeat. But he, he did the coaching and he had sparring partners. I've got my notes. I mentioned, mentioned, uh, Vilas hitting against two girls and it was hitting into the wind. Bjorn Borg's first wife, uh, she was ranked very high in the world. I think she was 36, 37 in the world, uh, Romanian, Mariana Simonescu. And it was amazing. Uh, Borg would be at Boca West, and he would hit for hours just up the middle of the court, um, just hour after hour, and not, not, hitting, not hitting that big a ball, but just over and over again. And the, and the swing patterns are the same. Then you just have to change gears. Just have to change gears. I remember seeing the same thing with. Uh, I remember seeing the same thing at the Miami Open when he used to be the Lipton, I guess, with uh, Leighton Hewitt and Kim Kleisters when they were when they were dating. They would just literally hit up the middle for a good hour, hour and a half. Yeah, with uh, I've mentioned before, Harold Salmon visited. Uh, we did some video work for his grandson and. Uh, so his father, you know, he's just a club player, according to Harold. And so, but he's a sparring partner, sparring partner is somebody you're hitting with. doesn't have to be someone who's a world-class player. And three times a week, they had hit a thousand balls in a row. And as they got to 999, they had to start again. And for our listeners, I mean, Harold's a small guy, five, number five, number six in the world. I mean, great tennis player. Um, you mentioned Leighton Hewitt, the, the term shag balls means that you're going to, as you know, you're just going to be on the side of the court. You feed the ball in. The, the players hitting never stop. They never stop. They just hit, hit, hit. And at a pro tournament, many times you're just going to get um, a court for 30 minutes. They're going to give you two cans of balls. They use one can for the first 15 minutes. In the next 15 minutes, next the second can of balls. And Hewitt, you know, it doesn't have to be a tennis player. It could have been uh, his physical trainer. But he would have two people shagging balls, and he would come out, and he would just outwork everybody there. And you know, I remember uh, Ryan Ginley, a coach who, had, you know, I thought years and years ago, a basketball guy did a very good job with intensity, telling a bunch of kids, "Hey, hey you know, you might not be able to be a Sampras or a Fetter." And it was at the time when Sampras was. Uh, you know, close to retiring and, and Federer was coming up. So the kids basically knew these guys and he said, but you can be a Leighton Hewitt. You know, you can go out and just work and just move and fight. Um, the, uh, I have my notes. And again, you brought that up with Austin Krychek, you know, um, you miss the ball, you're out. You know, we, we do all sorts of things to try to get people to keep the ball in play when they're rallying. Okay. If you miss you and your partner have to switch sides you have to jog to the other side, jog backwards. Um, or if you miss short and then you get their attention, you get your attention. It's really interesting when you have players play a ground game and you put something on the line and it's, it's, it's just a depth game. And then they start to have more shape and they start to have some arc over the net. Um, 
This is a line that uh, Joe Dicer, a senior player, used to say. It was at Holiday Park at first. He used to play practice there, which is now, as you know, in your neighborhood. It's called the Jimmy Everett Tennis Center. Um, a lot of players migrated over to the, at the time it was new, the tennis club before Lauderdale. It was way back to the 70s. But what Joe Dicer would say, there's 20 people uh, on any given day that can beat you 20 different ways. Uh, I do think that tennis becomes clicky, and um, a lot of times people um, they're just practicing with the same group of players, and they don't they don't see that they don't see that many tennis balls, different type tennis balls. Um, Here, let me backtrack. I wanted to add something to your yeah. Go ahead, Margaret. Margaret Court comment about um, the dangers of going uh, along the plank. Uh, we mentioned earlier Pato Alvarez. You know, I used to watch him when I used to go to Spain in the summer. And, you know, he must have been, he died uh, a couple of years ago. He was close to 90. So he must have been late 60s, in his late 60s, working with a group of um, probably like about six guys that were top 300 in the world or so. And he would start every practice with each of them where he's at net and they're hitting the ball back to him. And he would just volley it deep, volley it short, volley it deep, volley it short. Um, you know, he'd be doing it with with the thumb. <laughs> it's so funny watching him. He would hold the thumb on the grip, volleying, and it did not matter how hard they hit it. He would not miss one ball. If it was in his zone, he made it in. It was just you know the same the same basic idea as far as you know the Velos and the Brad Gilbert Agassi one hundred. The same concept here. He was trying to do fifty or it could have been 20, but whatever it was, it was a lot. And it was a lot harder than it sounds because he was moving them everywhere and they were hitting it hard, hard, hard. He would just not miss a ball. But I mean, yeah, it would prevent that plank hitting that you were discussing. No, that's a good point. Thanks. With the Spanish drill where you toss the ball, toss the ball into the court, they move diagonally in. They would go back to home base, recover to the baseline, and then you toss the ball and they move back diagonally. But yeah, for our listeners, you can do that with a live ball. Uh, you can have younger players that are new to the game, not beginners by any means, but you know, one player comes in and they just touch the ball for the volley and they have to move back. and The ball bounces and they just brush the ball. So you have one player moving up and moving back. But with that, when a player moves backwards to add to what you're saying is it's a great way for them to have a short backswing. You won't find players running backwards and having a huge backswing. The, uh, my amateur effort with, and I appreciate you as a professional helping us with these podcasts, um, Rocky quotes. I, I did have a bunch of Rocky quotes for one podcast and we never got to them, but, um, you had your one chance and you failed. Well, I'm throwing this in. I'm throwing this, I'm throwing this in though, is that, uh, a Rocky quote, uh, I'll, I'll be a good sparring partner. We'll take no cheap shots. With uh, so, some other things on a sparring partner. Um, if there there is no net, if you swing efficiently, there is no net. You know, you can alternate your feet. Somebody can hit a controlled ball to you. Okay, hit open stance, hit close stance. We've already mentioned alternate spin is worth mentioning again. When you miss, um, say sorry. You know, I apologize. We're wasting time. I missed. Um, 
no one stops when there's an error. Okay, so say your 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 hitting partner, sparring partner, they miss. You don't just stand there while they go to pick a tennis ball up. You're doing the shadow movement. You know, you're still taking swings. You just don't stop. Braden used to call it your frustration tolerance level. You know, how many balls can you keep in play? Just how many balls can you keep in play? But I do think there's uh, a frustration. I, I think there's a frustration tolerance level too. Um, you know, it's really interesting. Like kids that are really good at the baseline, they're gonna they're gonna practice at the baseline. A kid who's not very good at the baseline, they're gonna go to the net right away. They they'd like to be they'd like to be practicing where they're good. I think with parents, you know, we always say as far as feeding balls. So obviously that's not sparring, feeding tennis balls. But if you can feed bread breadcrumbs to a pigeon. But deal with where to hit the ball. So we do a drill called setter hitter. Then we have the setter count. And we have the setter just use a linear racket pattern. We call it tabletop, like a volley with an added follow through. And they just set the ball. They just are, you know, I don't really like the word push, but they're hitting the ball back. They're not hitting with topspin. And then how many out of 20 going cross court, cross court, and you can do the reverse cross court. So you can do down the line. But how many out of 20 can they hit up over the service line. And it's very important to say up over the service line. Uh, it's a lifting game. And so the setter is counting one for one, one for two, one for three. And how many can they get out of 20? And then to put skip ropes down. And I think that's one great thing about the 10 and under line is it's, it's nine feet from the baseline. And that's, if you're hitting the ball up over that nine foot line, the, where the tenant underline is. So you can just put it, if it's a clay court, you can just draw a line. Um, I think it's so important, again, not for sparring, just for sparring, but um, you got to teach kids to feed balls. Now, another thing that we have have kids do right away, and they're not very good at it at first, is to do a double hit with, and again, imagination is great at knowledge. You can have one kid at the net and you know, the other player is at the service line and they're doing it. The person at the service line is doing a double hit off the ground, but the volleyer has to hit and hold the racket head, that body balance position, the isometrics, hold themselves in that controlled position. Um, I think the better the player, uh, I think I've always said this about Roger Federer, he made full court tennis look like mini tennis. Um, you know, it's on our course, tennis intelligence applied, you know, uh, five different versions of mini tennis. One where you play service line to service line, one serve, stay back, golden rule, cannot hit the ball hard. One serve, you have to have a c- complete service motion, has to look like tennis. Mini tennis two where you have two service boxes, but you can come to the net. Mini tennis three, this is one that the people, the, the pros used to use. The pros would do this years ago at the end of practice, end of the day, and they would do it for dinner. And they would play serve and volley in one service box. Now, we, we had different variables to each one, but many tennis three that the serve and volleyer has to come in. We can do it where the returner comes in. And um, many tennis four, we don't do that as much, but that's one of the most popular among the pros is you hit down like you're playing ping pong. Many tennis five is a double hit. We do many t- tennis five with a California twist where the third time you're going to hit an emergency shot and the boys, uh, teenage boys love to hit the tweener. Um, 
I think with the sparring partner, and you mentioned you started off as a sparring partner, volley, volley. You know, it's very interesting that young upcoming tournament players, they really can't feed the courtesy lob like you're asked to do in a warm-up. And, you know, anything that's practiced can be improved. And um, being able to hit lobs off your racket while the other person is just hitting overheads. It really, in the end, it's control. And it's amazing how many young players have put so much time into tennis. Um, but because they're just banging balls from the baseline, they don't have the ability to, um, like, say, for example, one player's at the baseline, hit your opponent a ground stroke. I should say, you're at the baseline, you hit a ground stroke, and your hitting partner hits a volley, and then comes back to you, and you throw up a lob. So it's just really a high-low drill. And then, you know, how long can you practice or how long can you keep the ball in play high, low? So it's alternating overhead volley, overhead volley. And how long can you just keep that one ball in play? You know, I think also coming back to where, you know, we said, okay, the parents, if the parents are to feed balls, where does the shot go? Can you get 10 for 10 in out of the quadrant or into the quadrant um, with the the tar target tennis uh, but also too say for example one player is up at the net hitting volleys and they stay up at the net hitting volleys until they hit a, a volley short they miss wide longer in the net they miss or they should say they, they miss but they also they rotate back so if you have you have two players up the net hitting volleys and one of them hits a short volley they both jog backwards and then you do the same thing off the courtesy lob. You both get to stay up there until one of you misses an overhead. So control, consistency. Um, any other comments, questions, thoughts, concerns? No, I, thought, I, I think we uh, I think we covered a lot. I think it's going to be hopefully useful for young parents and players as they uh, as they go on because. I think it's a, it's, it's double-sided. It's got to be the hitting partner can be better, but then the parent that's probably overseeing the practice can also be better. So I think it's just not one-sided here. Yeah. I just have a few but, more things in my notes. Um, just to say it a second, third time is players need to be upset. They can be controlled. They get the sportsmanship award, but when they hit short in practice, they like, wait a minute, you're hitting short. You can add consequences to that. Um, I think also too, is that when you mentioned sparring partners, it's very important to do doubles. Okay. Spin your serve in, come in one, two, three volley, Peter Burwash serve, come in. And Peter would have people hit a double, double hit on the volley. You know, you come in and you, you, um, you gotta be careful because it can really influence someone to use a really strong continental grip. But you serve, you come in, you volley, and you you double hit the volley. You stop it on your forehand, hit your backhand, or vice versa. Um, but also, again, doubles, doubles, doubles. One thing we haven't really mentioned is a figure eight. Um, that's a drill that I think is, I like your phrase, being ushered away. You hit down the line, I hit cross court. And let's just keep the ball going. You know, someone mentioned someone like a Harold Solomon is it? Players like that could get to the point where they do that for a half an hour without missing. And it's just running, hitting the ball and moving, moving corner to corner. Um, I do think uh, 
it can be um, competitive and non-competitive. Let me say that correctly. Non-competitive to competitive. Non-competitive to competitive. It just baffles me. You tell some juniors, okay, rally the ball four times and play the point out, and they can do it. Rally the ball six times and play the point out. They can do it. Rally ball eight times and play the point out. They can do it. And then when they play, they can't rally. Uh, again, it just comes down to anxiety. Uh, I think predictable where um, you go, say you're going cross court and cross court to cross court deep. And then once one ball lands short, that the person automatically attacks. And you do all sorts of combinations like that. So that's really an offensive, decent defensive drill. Vandermeer used to always say, if you work on basics, basic shots, grow into specialty shots. And then, you know, you always have to work on emergency shots as well. Um, if people, a sparring partner has a control to do this, you know, hit a drop shot, the kid comes in and then they, they, they let the lob go over their head and they practice retrieving the lob. I think it's very important that the sparring partner has a skill level, but also has a knowledge base that they can create the situations that take place in a match. What do you got in the background there? Yeah, I guess it's, uh, what time is it here? 1030 or I don't know. They have the bells. Uh, I'm trying to figure out where it's coming from myself. Well, I do think with sparring, uh, there's a buildup on the mental side, the marathon minutes, you know, put those minutes in doing the same boring shot. You know, I, I talked a little bit about boredom. That was a Bradenism. Learn to hit the same boring shot. You know, tennis health, tennis health is being able to hit more balls. You know, again, the rich get richer, poor get poorer. I mean, keep the ball in play. Um, the physical side is constantly be moving your feet, happy feet. You know, then aerobic, anaerobic, you know, your lungs become as big as trash cans. The, um, yeah, before I sign off, I'll tell a Colombian story or two. You got a Colombian story or two? What comes to your mind? You think of tennis, t- tennis in Colombia. You must have a million stories. Tennis in Colombia, no. The only one that I've got is uh, <clears throat> when I used to come here as a, as a kid and even as an adult, doubles was not played at all. And recently we had the uh, number one doubles team in the world with uh, Farah and Kawal. So it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious to see if uh, in South America, if, uh, if doubles picks up a little bit more in popularity when you go to the clubs and see if people play it more. What I can assure you, Steve, is that I will be very shocked if I see pickleball in South America. They they will play paddle and other sports, I think, before they put pickleball. But I could be wrong. We will. We always have to throw in a pickleball reference here on, on every uh, podcast nowadays. So, which one of the? That is my. Well, that's good news, perhaps. Uh, although, I what I'm saying about pickleball is you can't beat them, join them. You know what we need to do in tennis. We've we've made all sorts of mistakes. If we had done a better job, pickleball wouldn't be booming like it is. But, 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 the best tennis player, the best pickleball players are tennis players. And I, I think it's a mistake. As I said, Sam Query said, yeah, you know, if tennis players got 90% of this game down, but there's, a, there's, there's definitely 10% to learn all the nuances and such. And, you know, all these so-called overnight instant pickleball experts from tennis. Um, yeah, so... We, we, you know, so what was your, what was your Colombian, uh, 
Well, let me ask a question. Well, I, 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 I could give you a Colombian story, but um, which of those Colombian players went to USC? Fada. Yeah, I understand that. When he went, when, when, when he went, he was. I heard he wasn't such a great volleyer, but uh, yeah, Jeff Kosier, who lived with us when he was a kid, some from South Africa, uh, trained with us, and then he ended up spending a lot of time with uh, Craig Tiley. You know, then Jeff, I mean, he ended up, the, the family, he spent some time with the tenant, extended tennis family, spent time with Raven Claussen. But yeah, Jeff, Jeff's been their coach for a long time. And, you know, he was there to help them become number one. Um, I used to, uh, I used to run the concession at, uh, at Dante Purcell Park and his sister, uh, Romy used to play at UM, was also a very good player. And I remember he, he worked for me for a few weeks in the summer before heading off to USC that freshman year. So a great guy. It was uh, awesome to see the guy who's had this level of success because, you know, I'm sure a lot of people didn't expect it. Um, Laura Hanna is from Tyler, Texas, and I spent a lot of time helping with her game. She played at Texas A&M, and I remember taking her to Europe with Liliana Fernandez. They, she played at, at A&M with with Laura and um, she ended up playing Fed Cup, but here's a story to end off, Ruben Perchek. Um, so at that time, at the time, Tracy Austin, she's a teenager. She's one of the best players in the world, but she was dating a guy by the name of Matt Agner, uh, Matt Anger, who uh, recently re- retired. He was a longtime coach at University of Washington. So Ruben from Cali, he goes to Wimbledon, and he plays Matt, he comes back and says, well, he felt like his swings were too big. And that's when the grass was different than it is now. So uh, Kim Wittenberg had introduced me to Ruben. He was playing at UC Irvine. So Kim brought him up to Cota de Casa and I started working with him. So he ended up spending an entire summer at Cota de Casa with his mom. And so he'd be doing Wimbledon and the U S open. And, uh, I said, hey, Vic, I got this kid. He's living here now with his mother. And I'm training him every day after the program for a few hours. And, you know, I was training him in the morning. I mean, they're living right at Cote de Casa. And uh, Vic used to walk his dogs every night. And he stopped. And, um, you know, his wife goes, where did Vic go? You know, so he he would be out there, uh, you know, for almost the entire practice session, night after night. So he's going to going to the US Open. So I'm going to the US Open. Vic's going to the US Open. And he was, so he's only 18, still playing juniors. And he was not signed up by the Colombian Tennis Federation because he didn't train with the Colombian Tennis Federation in the summer. He trained at the Vic Braden Tennis College. So he was not entered in the US Open. So tennis politics are everywhere. But um, he ended up a year later I know it wasn't uh, a large publication, but Columbia had his own magazine and he was on the cover and he played Davis cup, but the pro pro tennis wasn't for him. I remember him, uh, you know, playing and watching him lose to Martin Heidi in three sets and Andrik Sundstrom in three sets. And I mean, he hit the ball so well. And I remember Vic showing his strokes at the national teachers conference it was the same time that Chevy Chase was there. So it was Chevy Chase, Vic was showing Chevy Chase's strokes and Ruben Perchek's strokes. And yeah, so he didn't get to play the US Open. 
but pro tennis wasn't for him. And I mean, at one point he was on the medical staff at Stanford, but that's, uh, uh, two, 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 two players I worked with a hundred years ago, but one played and I, I did very little work with Lily, Liliana Fernandez, but, um, enough where, I mean, I, I went to Europe with her and, um, but then Ruben, he just transformed, he changed his game and, you know, he's hitting the ball so well, but he, he didn't stay out there very long. Um, I would, I would guess less than a year, year and a half max. And then went, you know, went to school forever and became a, a medical expert, holistic medicine, but Colombian tennis, um, with, uh, yeah, a lot to be said about Colombians. Um, it's amazing how many people I've met from Colombia over the years. Tennis is. Uh, yeah, now you've got a you've got a young girl now that uh, or young woman now that uh, uh, that's doing well, Maria Camila Osorio. Yeah, she she won the she won the she won the, she won the French right, French juniors. Could be. I'm not sure. I, well, I, um, there's a girl from Columbia who won the French juniors. I'm. You have to check it out, fact checker. And uh, I, so I she can do it now it's a, on the phone. That's that's a skill I don't have. So anyway, she uh, if it's the same gal, um, she was training at the USDA National Tennis Center, and um, a couple of our boys uh, went over and teenage boys. Um, I remember. Two of them uh, going three sets with her, and uh, come on, guys! But they wouldn't go to the net. We, you know, two guys that we trained forever, and uh, I don't want to mention their names: uh, Rush Ganji and Tal Goodman. <laughs> they, they wouldn't go to the net. I love when you, I love when you do that. I love they they wouldn't go that. to the net. I go, boys! I remember Andy Fitzell, uh being over there with one of them, and goes, "Yeah, it was. It was. It was a good day. It took an hour and twelve minutes for the for our player to go to the net." Anyway, she won the U.S. Open Juniors, not US the Open. French Open Juniors. Yeah, so that's pretty impressive. So that's who it was. Uh, she had won a Grand Slam title. So sparring partners, um, sparring partners with knowledge, without knowledge. A sparring partner in boxing, they were a helmet and a mouth guard. The sparring partner in tennis, they have a role, but they should not have a speaking part unless they have something to say. Um, but I appreciate you doing this. Uh, it's, uh, you're, you're not at the table across from me, but it was your idea to put up the Vic Braden chair. So I appreciate that. I can't, uh, I can't kick you. So it's, uh, yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, I'm glad this worked out well. No, oh, thanks. Uh, and I do I think that, uh, we, we've I had, was missing our, our weekly, our weekly, uh, meetup. I do think that, uh, you know, the, the people that have contacted me via email, and uh or other means they've let me know uh hey you should go back and do some topics or review the forehand review the backhand um but again thanks for doing this andres appreciate it all right steve all the best to your family down there all right bye appreciate it thank you have a great day all right podcast 144 a dozen dozen that's a lot of podcasts i hope that people uh got something out of this appreciate it Andre's taking the time, but Kentucky Derby. Uh, what does Andy, Andy, Andy Roddick, great interview. What's he say about NASCAR? It's four hours ago and left. Um, anyway, um, the Kentucky Derby, 
and now sparring. That's what we covered in this podcast. Thanks. Adios, amigos. Adios.